This morning, in the book of Matthew, chapter 1. It is a joy to be studying in Matthew here during the Christmas. I hope that was excitement running down the hallway and not... <laughs> I sometimes squeals of delight and squeals of terror sound very similar, so... Um, but I'm going to assume that was happiness. But it is a unique joy to be in the Gospel of Matthew here uh, in the Christmas season. I was talking to my wife this week about uh, the sermon and the text. And one of the things I told her was having grown up in church, spent a lot of time uh, hearing Christmas stories. Um, when I was a little boy, a uh, highlight was I got to be Joseph uh, in, in, the, in the Christmas pageant at a pretty large church we went to as a child. And even better than that, uh, my Sunday school crush was Mary, and so that was a golden moment for me. Um, my children teased me. I got to play Andro, the littlest star. <sighs> I even had a singing solo. I'm glad that they've burned all tapes and recordings of that since that time. Um, but the, it's interesting because I think if you, if you grow up, you're familiar with the Christmas story, it all tends to blend into one big story. And you think of different events, and you kind of can tell the timeline uh, for a long time. Uh, in my family growing up, we would go to my grandmother's house, grandma and grandfather's house, every Christmas Eve. It was a huge family gathering. Uh, and several of those, they would read the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and so you become very, very familiar with the story. What's been fascinating, even in particular this week in spending time in Matthew, is seeing how much of the story Matthew leaves out how much of the story Luke intentionally includes as opposed to what Matthew is doing. And they really match, obviously, well with the sermon that they're preaching. The Gospels are sermons. And, and so as Matthew's doing this, uh, he approaches the Christmas story, the Genesis story of Jesus' birth, in a radically different way than, than what Luke does. And that difference, I think, can provide us the framework for how we think about and understand the Christmas story this morning. And so maybe I can introduce it to you this way. Most of you know that I'm a, I, I'm, I'm a music guy in the sense that I play the radio really well. Um, uh, but I'm a music guy in the sense that I love, I love lyrics. I love lots of genres. Um, there's very, very few genres I don't like. I'm looking at you country. But, um, but, but, uh, but I appreciate good lyrical music. Now, one of my children loves classical um, and so he, he blares it, and um, another one of my children, who shall remain nameless, is a little bit of a Swifty, and, but we still love her and forgive her. Um, but, but one singer-songwriter who's noted for her deep lyrical content, whether you appreciate this artist or not, is Joni Mitchell. And Joni Mitchell actually um, wrote a song years and years ago. You've probably heard the song, even if you wouldn't identify its title, that really can help us begin thinking about the Gospel of Matthew, ironically enough, this morning. And, and it's the song, Both Sides Now. Now, as most of you know, Joni Mitchell was super famous, but she wrote this song before fame occurred. She was only 24 years of age. Um, she had actually had several very difficult years. She had a child a few years prior, could not care for the child, and had um, turned the child over to fo the foster care system. Uh, Joni had then had a very quick marriage uh, to a man that turned out to be abusive who then divorced her. She divorced him very, very quickly. Uh, and so at 24 years of age, she is this folk artist that nobody knows and cares about, this Canadian, 
and she is flying uh, across the country, and she's reading a book about a guy who actually goes through a midlife crisis at 24. This is what she's reading. And as she looks down, she's thinking about life, and, and she begins to contemplate the fact that life has turned out very different than what she thought. And the whole theme of the song is she talks about seeing clouds and kind of pictures as a small child looking up at the clouds and you see ice cream cones and castles in the sky and uh, it's all wonderful and horsetails and floss and it's beautiful. And uh, my guess is all of us at some point as children laid on the ground making pictures out of the clouds. Well, now as though she flew above the clouds, she could look down on them and you, the clouds look very, uh, my presumption is most if not all of us have been in a plane, they look very different from above, and particularly if they're storm clouds, they look very, very different. And she begins reflecting on the difference between the illusion of beautiful clouds and now having experienced the flip side of the storms of life. The second verse contemplates love that way. Love and its illusion is beautiful, and it's always uh, night and shining armor on a white horse that would come rescue you. And it's all these mindset of love, and now she's experienced the heartbreak of marriage to an abusive husband that she divorced and having to give up a child and it looks very different. She ends them with life. And these kinds of lyrics, as finishes the song, I've looked at life from both sides now, from win and lose. And still somehow, it's life's illusions I recall, I really don't know life at all. The crushing of the illusion, the, the destruction of what you think something's supposed to be and seeing the other side of it can be an earth-shattering experience for us. Thinking something is going to be X and it turns out Y, and then having to process through and wrestle through, well, what is it really? What really is, and for this wonderful singer-songwriter, but, but yet lost, how does she comprehend and wrestle through that? And, and so her ultimate conclusion is it leaves me confused, I don't know, but I'm going to focus on the illusion, is what she's saying. Well, how do we process things as Christians when we see both sides. Because frankly, life is beautiful, and if we're all honest, sometimes life stinks. And what do we do with that? The cross is maybe even the greatest picture of this. Uh, as one lyricist has said, it's where joy and sorrow meet. When we celebrate communion, there's a celebration of communion, but it's intense sorrow that's mingled with it. Well, when you think about the Christmas story, Matthew starts with divorce. Matthew goes from divorce to the slaughter of the innocents. From the slaughter of the innocents to the fleeing away to Egypt. Luke has Gabriel showing up to Mary. He's got, he's got an angel in the temple with John the Baptist. He's got angel choir singing and shepherds worshiping. Luke gives you all the niceties. In very little of the negative, Matthew jumps right into the most painful elements surrounding the birth of Jesus. And then he stays there until he starts Jesus' ministry. He gives us the other side of the birth story. And so it was fascinating to me to think through the reality, if all you had was the Gospel of Matthew, and that's all the church had uh, for at least a decade or more, it was not the whole birth story that you and I know. It was a very particular perspective of it. But I think that there is a beauty to it because I think in looking through Matthew lenses at the birth story, we can see a birth story that reminds us that God sees, hears, and rescues us 
and his love. And, and in that way, and if we were in the Gospel of Luke, we'd preach it from the other direction, and that's fine. But in this way, as, as, because we're in Matthew, I think that the Gospel account of Matthew in the birth story meets us in our seasons of sorrow maybe better than the way Luke's does. And yet there is hope there. And so this morning, we want to start this process of, of working through, uh, we'll, we'll just be in chapter 1 here, 18 through 25, uh, and then next week we'll do the first part of chapter 2, and then we'll finish Christmas Sunday with the rest of chapter 2. And so with that introduction, let's, let's read, following your Bibles with me this morning as I read, and I'm going to pick up in Matthew 1, verse 18, and read down through the end of the chapter. Matthew, the Word of God, says this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Now, there's two Quick facts in there I, I need to identify because they're not dealt with extensively in the sermon later, but they are important for you to at least understand the flow, and I don't want you to be distracted by them. Number one, betrothed um, and divorce. The closest we can get to betrothal today would be our modern cultural understanding of engagement, but you would never divorce someone you're engaged to. And so it's important for you to understand there is a legal verbal contract that has, has happened, uh, and some of this is Jewish law, some of this is cultural understanding. So there's a, a, a betrothal period, and it could last for up to a year, uh, where the husband has made an agreement, forged an agreement, both with the girl and her father, that he will legally take care of her, and she is his responsibility. There is now delay, typically during that time. Uh, the husband, future husband, the groom, would build onto his parents' home. Uh, that was the norm, although it didn't have to be that way. Uh, he would find a place and prepare a place and all those things so that when they're actually married, they can now do life together as a married couple. So it's a legal binding contract. And so during the betrothal, if there was some violation, it would also need to be legally ended. And God had given provision in the book of Deuteronomy under the law of how that separation would take place, and that separation was called divorce. It was a relatively easy procedure. If a Jewish husband wanted to divorce his wife, even during betrothal, or after the marriage itself, he simply had to give a written order of divorce, I divorce you, and it be presented in the presence of two witnesses. So this is not a complex procedure. That's why that's going on, lest you be distracted by it. Uh, however, during that time period, as is noted, there was no physical consummation. They didn't live together. So I'm legally responsible, but there's no physical consummation yet of this contractual agreement. So there's that. 
Um, secondarily, you may notice that it says they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's the best translation we can do with this, um, but it's basically saying that he will be known as God with us. It's not saying that's going to be his proper name, but the same way that Matthew talks about him as Jesus Christ, and last week we talked about how in our modern culture we almost think of that as a last name, but it's not. It's a title. It, it means Messiah or anointed one, one who has come to deliver us. Emmanuel is the same way. And so there's different titles and descriptors are being given, but his proper name is Jesus or Yeshua, Joshua. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that later. So betrothal, Emmanuel, that aside, there are three groups of characters here that we need to work through from the other side that will help us to see the birth story as Matthew is telling it. And so we want to begin, first of all, with Joseph. Jesus's adoptive earth father. Now, Joseph is an interesting character. There's not a lot in the Bible about him, and most of what we get about him is actually right here in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's pretty fascinating that Matthew opens with Joseph. Joseph plays a role, and as we'll see this morning in Matthew's account, a significant role. But all things being equal, he doesn't, wouldn't normally play the central role. If you were to go into a, a home and meet a couple, maybe for the first time or what have you, you might ask them, well, um, oh, I see you have a child or children. Uh, what's the birth story? It's not typically the husband who talks. Well, let me tell you what the nine months were like for me. Um, it's typically focused on the mother, and rightfully so. And that's in a situation where the father is physically the father. Joseph is not physically Jesus' dad, and yet Matthew starts with Joseph. He doesn't just start with Joseph, he stays with Joseph throughout his story. Joseph becomes the central driving figure throughout his story. And when he wants to think about the birth of Jesus, he starts with this semi-ugly moment about divorce. It seems like a shocking start, but I think it actually fits perfectly with how Matthew thought about himself. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, when he describes him coming, himself coming to Christ, he's very open with the fact that he's a tax collector and his friends are prostitutes and other tax collectors. And, and so all the people that folks rejected. In other words, Matthew is keen to talk about the one that no one else wants to talk about, probably because that's where Matthew finds himself in the story, the one that normally no one would want to talk about. And so if you ever feel like an outcast, an outsider, someone that doesn't quite fit in, I think that you'll be particularly blessed by the Gospel of Matthew as we work our way through it. And so Joseph, there's a couple of things that we want to notice about him, things that Matthew highlights. First of all, Matthew highlights that he is a righteous man, and there are four indicators here of Joseph's righteousness. First of all, the text says that he is a just man. Right? It says, verse 19, her husband Joseph being a just man. Uh, there's a couple of ways that you could translate uh, or you could say that someone is righteous. There's one way you could say someone is righteous that is used almost always. Uh, think of the verse when Jesus says, scarcely for a righteous man would one die. That Greek word that's used in that verse indicates someone who is good and upright, but also very likable and kind. That's not the word Matthew uses here. Matthew instead uses the word here of someone who is a rigorous follower of the law. 
Not normally someone that they would naturally think of as kind. Now Matthew's doing that because he also wants to show us that Joseph is kind, not just tell us that he is kind. But to start with, he says he's a follower of the law. So whether Joseph remembered all the law from Deuteronomy about what you do or you don't do when you're in his situation, what do I do, or whether he went to the synagogue to research it after Mary comes to him, and we can hardly wrap our minds around that moment, and Mary, anywhere, honestly, anywhere between the ages of 13 to 18, most likely right there in about the middle, 14 or 15, think then even about how old Mary is when Jesus dies. So frequently she's depicted as this older woman. She was actually only in her 40s, most likely. And so very young here, coming to Joseph. Joseph, um, uh, people have guessed for a long time, how old is Joseph? It's not the creep factor that lots of folks make it out to be. Oh, Joseph is this old guy. And uh, why do they think Joseph was an old guy? They think Joseph is an old guy because he doesn't show up in the rest of the Gospels. So the presumption is he died. And so if he died, he was older and he died. So they frequently, I remember even growing up hearing this in sermons, Mary was like 14 and Joseph was probably 60. And I mean, I was like, oh. I mean, that's like high creep factor. The reality, though, is Joseph is known for his career, and that actually wasn't that common for that age gap. Uh, most likely, Joseph is somewhere in his 20s. There's still a creep factor here for us today, but he's somewhere in his 20s. Mary, his, his betrothed one, comes to him. There's every indication this is not just um, an arranged marriage in the sense that Joseph cut a deal with Mary's dad and they don't have a connection. Because he oozes love and compassion for this girl. And so it's hard to wrap your mind around this girl sitting with him alone on a bench somewhere in town, somewhere public, and telling him, I'm pregnant. And him hearing this news and trying to process through her telling him that she is pregnant with God incarnate. And so Joseph is like, how do I, what do I do and Matthew tells us he's the kind of guy that's going to follow the law. Now, Joseph could have pursued the law against Mary if he believed that Mary was a willing participant and essentially just committed adultery, and he could have pursued her being stoned to death. But he doesn't. And instead, he resolves, I'm going to follow the law, but I'm going to do it in the kindest way possible. And that shows us something about Joseph. As Matthew describes her, her husband Joseph being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So it's not just that I'm going to not pursue the death penalty, but I'm going to try to do this in a way that as few people know as possible. This shows us that Joseph didn't just understand the law. He understood the author of the law. God is just, but God is also merciful and gracious and kind and forbearing and long-suffering and loving. And so Joseph is a righteous man because he is clearly a follower of not just what God says, but who God is. Furthermore, Joseph quickly obeys the angel. Uh, Joseph and his dreams show up a lot in Matthew's account, but as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
This goes on to quote Isaiah, why this happens is to fulfill this prophecy. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Now, I think most of us want to believe that if an angel showed up to us in a dream, we would instantaneously obey. However, clearly not everybody in the Bible obeys that quickly. Gideon, who's noted as a righteous and faithful man, does not obey quickly when he's told by God what to do. And in fact, he repeatedly disobeys and tries to find a way out of it. John the Baptist's father wants to have a debate with the angel in the middle of the temple. And as a result, is struck mute for the next nine months. In other words, you could be a godly person and wrestle with obeying God. Joseph wakes from a dream. He doesn't think, to quote Scrooge, that it's a bad piece of beef or a spot of mustard. He is convinced that God has come to him and he is going to obey. And so when he says he doesn't want to shame Mary much, Joseph deciding to pursue marriage with this girl is bringing her shame on himself. Just because Joseph believes doesn't mean everyone else believes. And so Joseph is this man who will obey God, and he is righteous, and he is a follower of the law. But furthermore, he preserves Mary. Verse 25, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph chooses to refrain from intimacy with Mary not just till after their marriage is fulfilled legally, but even furthermore after the birth of Christ himself. Now, this is obviously not just kept between them because Matthew is aware of it enough to write about it here. Why would he do that? He would do that to preserve the miraculous nature of the conception and birth of Christ. He would do this to preserve the integrity of his wife of her innocence, of her name, and of her character. Joseph, in every way possible, Matthew wants to put on display, is a righteous man. But Joseph just isn't just a righteous man. He's an active kind of guy. Joseph's a doer. Um, and we see that, that, that he's a careful doer. When he finds from Mary and she tells him this, drops this bomb on him of news, it's not an immediate reaction. He considers it. He dwells on it. He thinks about it. Uh, he's processing through it. He's not a rash kind of guy. But when it's time to move, he moves. When it's time to decide, he decides. From the very start of his character being put on display, to his response to the angel, to his care for Mary, Joseph is playing the central role. Joseph is this engaged and active father. He's going to act by the law. He's going to act according to maintain Mary's innocence. He acts by finding a place for the baby to be born later. He acts by rescuing Jesus from the murder plot of Herod. He acts by secreting them away to Egypt. He acts by bringing Jesus back to Nazareth so that Jesus can be, born, can be raised where he's supposed to be. Once Herod is dead, Joseph says, it's time to go back, and I'm going to go back with my family at this point. Joseph is not some disengaged, annoyed, and irritated by the whole situation kind of dad. This isn't his baby, and everybody's going to know it. But Joseph is not ashamed to make Jesus his own as much as he can. Years ago, I remember visiting one couple in the hospital, um, and I was just talking to them and asking them how things had gone, and um, at the time, my wife was expecting, and uh, the husband advocated to us um, 
we asked how they slept, and he had slept great. He slept in a hospital bed. And I remember looking at the bed, and I was like, well, it had to be cramped. New mom, dad, baby in the bassinet. And she's like, no, she slept on the sofa. I'm like, what? Look, hospital sofa, not comfortable. And they were like, yeah, it's just like, it's misery how miserable he is if he doesn't get a good night's sleep. So he's, he slept in the bed while new mom slept on the sofa. That's one of those moments that, that's why the Bible tells pastors you can't be a striker or a brawler. Because you just want to grab the guy and like start slapping him, right? Like, what is the matter with you? That's his own wife and his own baby. There's all kinds of stories that frequently, and this is not a knock against step-parents, but frequently the top physical abusers of children is a stepdad or the boyfriend of a mom where that's not his child. That's not all of them. There are wonderful stepfathers. There are wonderful foster fathers out there. But there are all kinds of evil, wicked men who either are disconnected, uncaring, or worse, abusive toward children that are not their own. This is not Joseph's baby. It equals shame on him, but Joseph, because he's a righteous man, is an active, engaged father. Luke actually tells us later that when Jesus is 12 and they go to the temple, and you might remember that in the hubbub and the mix and all the throng of people, they realize later that they've left Jesus behind. The Bible doesn't say Mary goes back. His parents go back to find him. His parents are worried about him. His parents care about him. Later, there will be people, some who know that, that Jesus was not Joseph's son, who said he must be the son of a Samaritan. But most others said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Joseph is an active dad in Jesus' life. There is a father who taught Jesus how to use the tools of the trade of carpentry. It was his dad. There is a father who would have demonstrated in front of Jesus what masculine courage looks like, what marriage looks like, what parenting looks like. There's every indication Joseph would have been the kind of dad who would have made sure his son, Jesus, was in synagogue and would have heard the law being read and would have known the word and been informed by the word. Joseph is a man who knows the law. He would have taught his children what the law had to say. Joseph is a man who knows God the Father. He wanted one of children to know and hear about God the Father. There is so much that's there that Joseph is demonstrating he is a wonderful, active father. In doing so, Joseph actually points us to God. And he does it from both sides. You see, because Joseph shows us that God sees adoption from both sides. Now, we are told later in Galatians that God adopts us in a wonderful passage. But before we go there, can I just point out Jesus had the experience of being adopted. And that is a profound truth. Because what it's telling us is Jesus experientially knew what it was like to be raised by a parent that was not his birth parent. To be loved by someone who genetically was not his. To be cared for by someone that didn't carry his DNA. And we don't know what Jesus looked like. 
We don't know. We know that he is conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit and by the egg of Mary. And so, yes, God absolutely, obviously, in his grace and his glory, could have made Jesus to look like both of them. But there would be every, and there's no reason scientifically for that to have been the case. Every baby I've ever gone to visit or hold, somebody will start talking about, do they look like the mother or the father? They have this one's nose or ears or eyes. Personality, quirks, idiosyncrasies. Talents and gifts. And Joseph brings Jesus into his world. Joseph sacrifices his own reputation. Joseph sacrifices his own time, his money, his energy. Joseph flees away to Egypt for a number of years in order to raise Jesus there in safety. He protects him. He is willing to lay down his own life for his son that he has adopted. Jesus has this experience then, even while Joseph is putting on display for us what a good adoptive father looks like. And then on the flip side, God says he adopts us. In Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, it was this moment, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And I don't have time to unpack all the, the depth of meaning and of Roman-style adoption. Uh, I will say this, Roman adoption is very similar to our current culture of adoption, and it's people going and choosing that I'm going to make this child my own and, and it really is my child legally and, and fully and I love them as my own child. This is what happens in our salvation. We are orphans who are rejected. We are, we are, we, we are orphans who are distant. We, we are orphans who have been abandoned and, but we're not beautiful, bright-eyed, little cherubic babies. The older a child it gets, the less likely are their chances of adoption. Just this past week, the, the young man who was the shooter at Oxford High School in Michigan was sentenced. He'll never see the light of day. It's life without parole. He killed a number of people. He himself said, I'm evil. And so our society says, you can't be with us. We're like that child, and God adopts us. You see, because at the end of the day, who he adopts and who he brings in are very wicked sinners who have killed his son with our sin. And he makes us his own. And there's such an intimacy here of the Abba Father declaration. I'm sure many of you have heard before, some, some preachers will even say, well, that's like saying, Daddy, it, it, it comes close um, in our modern culture, but there is a depth of relational connection there. Um, I like how John Piper says it, who can interrupt the king at three in the morning for, the gla for a glass of water? Only his own child, right? 
There is just an intimacy and a freedom of connection here that we have with God. God knows what it's like to grow up in a home with a dad that's not yours but loves you like his own. And God knows what it's like to be the father who loves you and brings you into his home and loves you like his own. Matthew's gospel birth story tells us Joseph from both sides. And it's beautiful because of it. But it's not just Joseph. We can, we can now move to another character. And the next set of characters have everything to do with the language that Matthew uses. And it is fascinating. And we're actually going to go to a lady in the Old Testament of Hagar. And that seems somewhat shocking. But when Matthew chooses his words to describe Mary's uh, conception and pregnancy... This whole, she was found to be with a child. He is actually specifically quoting a couple of moments in the Old Testament. There are a couple of moments in the Old Testament when an angel would show up and declare, you're going to have a baby and it's going to be a son. And there is a number of ways Matthew could have chosen to do it, but he is borrowing, robbing Moses' language to say it. Now, what that tells us is, in part, when Matthew sat down to write his gospel, he knew, and we talked about this some last week, the Genesis story, this book of genealogy is to say the Genesis of Jesus. Verse 18 is again to say the Genesis of Jesus. It's like Matthew said, well, if I'm going to write the Genesis story of Jesus, I'm going to go back and read the Genesis story Moses wrote. And so when he came to this moment to want to tell us about Jesus' birth, the conception and the birth and, and the baby in Mary's womb, he said, well, there's some stories I'm going to use. Having primarily written to the Jews and a Jewish audience, they would have picked up on this immediately. Takes us a little bit more work to be able to see and to grasp it and wrap our minds around it. And so by doing this, he is citing a number of birth stories. And I'm going to talk about both of those. Hagar, though, stands out very differently from the rest. And so it is helpful for us. Hagar, you might remember, is the Egyptian slave girl. She's living in Abraham and Sarah's uh, tent structures, their nomadic village. And Sarah has not been able to conceive a child, even though God has promised Abraham, you're going to have a baby, um, you're going to have a son, and he is just going to be father to this massive nation that's going to outnumber the stars of the sky. And here's Sarah sitting over here, and she can't get pregnant. So Sarah comes up with a plan. Everybody's looking at Sarah. Sarah, why can't you get pregnant? And routinely, particularly in this culture, uh, Who gets the blame if the woman's not getting pregnant? The woman does. And so infertility was an incredible blight, and it was frequently seen as the curse of God upon a woman. So Sarah comes up with a plan, and she says, you know what? You should sleep with the Egyptian slave girl, Hagar. Now, why would she do that? If you think Sarah wanted that to happen to fulfill the promise... You don't understand shame-filled people living under a burden that they can't fulfill. What if Hagar can't get pregnant either? Who catches the blame now? Abraham. Sarah never intended for Hagar to get pregnant. She intended to rescue her own name. Now, I'm not going to be hard on Sarah because much later... In Hebrews, it tells us she is a woman of faith. She goes into her husband, and she ultimately does become pregnant. And we'll see uh, just the blessing of God on her in a moment. But this puts Hagar in a really difficult place. And she is obviously despised and rejected. Hagar 
is now with child. She is a slave girl from Egypt. Uh, This is an incredibly horrendous moment in biblical history. We're not going to shy away from the reality of it. But this is a slave being taken advantage of by the master, Abraham. Um, Lots of people in the Bible are not like, you know, I've said this before, we tend to think very binary, someone's good or bad. Uh, None of us are good or bad, right? Like, uh, even bad people will do good things, good people do bad. Like, Like, Abraham, David, Solomon, they have some rough history here. This is a rough moment. This is a horrible moment. This is a terrible moment. This is a wicked moment. But now Hagar is pregnant. News gets out, obviously. This is essentially, we would categorize it legally today as a rape. But she's pregnant, and Hagar's disposition is one of affection and love for this child, this infant that she's carrying. Sarah is very angry about it. Because now it really makes her look bad and the resentment of her husband having been intimate with another woman. Sarah can abide a lot. Sarah doesn't get this angry when when Abraham lies about who she is and puts her at risk. But she is ticked now. And so she begins to abuse Hagar. And so in her mistreatment, Hagar runs away. She flees the scene. Uh, Abraham doesn't love her. He used her. Her, her, her master's wife, Sarah, now hates her. She can't abide under the abuse and the mistreatment, so she flees away, and it is her first encounter with God. And in Genesis 16:11, the same language is used that Matthew uses. And it's actually the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord. When you read your Bible in the Old Testament, you will see some frequently phrases like angel of the Lord or, or angels of the Lord. But when it puts this... Um, Particular phrasing, the angel of the Lord. It is always a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. And so the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, actually appears to her as she has run away. And he gives the birth announcement to Hagar, and he says that she is pregnant and she's going to have a son. And he even tells her what to name the baby, Ishmael. And then tells her to go back to Sarah. Years later, Now when Ishmael is a little boy, Hagar is once again being afflicted and once again being abused, and she's sent away now with Ishmael into the wilderness. So the first time she runs away, the second time she's thrown out, and Abraham gives her a skein, a a little water bottle, um, and sends her into the wilderness. She's not going to survive on this. Everybody would know this is a death sentence. And he sends her out. She gets to the end of her rope. Who knows how long she's out there? The water's all gone. She can't find water. She can't provide for herself and her son. She sets the boy down in some shade, and she goes off a distance so that she won't have to watch him die. And she calls out to God. Once again, Hagar is despised and rejected, and her only hope is in God. None of this is Hagar's fault. She is a victim of her circumstances, which is to say she is a victim of the providence of God. But in these moments, Hagar is heard and seen. The first encounter that Hagar had with the angel of the Lord is actually a stunning and beautiful moment. In her despair and her affliction, she is visited personally 
ministered to graciously and cared for lovingly. It could have been enough for, for some stranger to come along and, or for God to even feed her with ravens. He did that with one of his prophets. Uh, for, for God to have sent a means or, or to have prompted Abraham to go out and find her. He could have chosen anything, but none of that was enough. God says, I am coming to earth and I am going to visit with her. This despised, rejected slave girl. The burden of the baby becomes a blessing. And it opens the door to an amazing moment. Why does God tell her to name the baby Ishmael? Because the name Ishmael means God hears me. In our moments of affliction, we are prepared to hear God's voice the clearest. C.S. Lewis famously said that pain is the megaphone that God uses to shout to a deaf world. David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. I don't say that to minimize, to marginalize your pain and your suffering. I don't think me looking at you and saying, here's all the, the fruits of, of the suffering that God brings into your life, and so that makes it all fine and okay. God is actually does not deal with our suffering that binary, does he? Like when he even uses other nations to punish Israel, he then punishes those other nations. While God in his sovereignty and in his omniscience and his omnipotence weaves together a tapestry that is of grace, we still look at the backside of the tapestry and we just see a mess of threads. There will come a day that we see the beauty that he's woven together. But yet there is pain and hardship. And in those moments, like Hagar's moment, he says, I want you to remember always God hears. And so think of the beauty of that. When it's three years later, five years later, when, when, when suddenly Hagar is out there and she's trying to serve Sarah and, and her son is, is wandering away and he's going away and she has to call for him or she's made dinner and she steps outside and she says, Ishmael, it's dinner time. Every time she says his name, she remembers God hears me. He put into her life a constant reminder that God hears us in our sufferings and in our sorrows. He draws near to the brokenhearted. And so when Hagar responds to God, the angel of the Lord in this moment, she actually says, God sees me. Sociologists and psychologists say the two greatest needs we're all born with, we enter the world with, are to be seen and to be heard. Babies do this all the time. They cry so that we hear them and so that we, they've got one way to communicate, right? One of, the, one of the hardest things about parenting a small child is the whole game you play of figuring out what they actually need or want, right? Like, like are, is it a diaper? Is it, are they hungry? Do they need to be burped? Do they just want to be held? Do they want to be played with? I don't know. You know, those, it's those two o'clock in the morning in the rocking chair moments and all they can do is cry. They want to be seen and they want to be heard. But we all walk into the rest of our life wanting to be seen and heard. And so God tells her, I hear you. And Hagar says, you see me. It's a glorious moment. Hagar is the first person in the whole Bible that calls God by his personal name. This Egyptian slave girl with Ishmael says, Yahweh sees me. 
Are you in a season where you wonder, does God even see me? Does he hear me? Hagar actually shows us that God sees our need from both sides. Hagar is sent out into the wilderness. She's all alone. She has no one but God sees her. God ministers to her with provision and protection and promise. And then on the other side, Jesus comes and he is born as an infant, helpless, at risk to a mother who's experiencing society's judgment and rejection through no fault of her own. Born to a father, will he care for him or love him or not? Jesus knows intimately what it means to be in need of being seen and heard. When Jesus is in the wilderness, he experiences the ministry of his heavenly father in his need. In the garden, he experiences the ministry of God in his need. These experiences of God too are so important to him and to us because Jesus tells us later it's because he knows suffering because he's experienced need because he's experienced trials and turmoils that he is acquainted with all these kinds of suffering that's what the language means Jesus was acquainted with all kinds of suffering that tells us Jesus had fevers and Jesus got sick Jesus voluntarily withheld the use of certain of his divine attributes omniscience and omnipresence he grew as a child he learned to talk he learned to use a fork he learned to walk he fell down he had bruises he cut his hand. Jesus lived truly God, truly man. He experienced all that, and he wants you and I to know it because he wants us to understand our Father does not look down on our suffering and our hardships and say, what are they whining about? He looks down on your suffering. He looks down on your hardships. He sees you. He hears you, and his compassion oozes for you because he knows it from both sides now. It is a beautiful moment. It is a wonderful and glorious truth. And so then, I would tell you, when you cry to God, he hears you. This morning, I, Darren just read part of this psalm. And so I don't have time this morning. And, and so I don't, it's one of those, as I'm writing this sermon this week, I'm like, I don't know how to direct your hearts ultimately, what, you, what I would encourage you to do throughout the rest of this week. Because I would say, man, you should go back and read Genesis 16. And then I think it's uh, 25 when the story of Hagar picks up again. And there's just a beautiful moment there. Or you could spend all week just in Psalm 40. I don't have time, but I will say this. When we cry out to God, the psalmist, David, begins to reflect on this. And he reflects how God puts you on solid ground instead of shaky ground. There's such imagery here. Do you feel like you're on shaky ground in this season of your life? What's going to happen? Where do I go next? He gives you a song of praise. He gives you a testimony to shout to others. He reminds you of his work. He preserves you in trials, and he causes you to hope in him. God sees you, and he hears you. He understands this, and Hagar points us to this. We've got to move. There's one last group, and these are unlikely mothers. <laughs> they are barren moms. There are three other births that are being echoed here in Matthew's birth story. They are all dead wombs that become alive. Sarah is far too old to bear a child. And yet God opens her womb and with promise says, you'll bear a son. Hannah is crying out to God and he opens her womb also. Rachel is a laughingstock. And God opens her dead womb, and she has a son. Three women, 
three dead wombs and three sons. It's life from death, life from an impossible place, and life miraculous. And Matthew uses those angelic announcements in the language of Moses when he wants to talk about the birth of Jesus. You might remember later, Jesus will rebuke the religious leaders and teachers because he tells them, all that has been written, the law and the prophets all pointed to me. One of the things I love about the gospel of Matthew is Matthew has more quotes from the Old Testament than any other gospel writers. They all reference the Old Testament. Matthew outstrips them all. Matthew clearly took to heart that admonition of Jesus. And when Matthew decided, I'm going to write the story of Jesus, he was on mission to help put the Jesus of the Old Testament on display. And so he uses this language, and as he does it, it actually helps us with our biblical theology, understanding that Jesus is literally on every page of the Bible. What all these women have in common is deep sorrow. They're all in a place where they have gone without having a child for so long that it's obvious that their womb is much more like a tomb. For at least two of the women, Hannah and Sarah, they are so far beyond childbearing age that it would have been obvious to them. Unless God does something miraculous. And so there is an obvious reality of grief for each of these mothers and the deep sorrow that comes. The Bible doesn't try to mask or hide or shield us from the depth of their sorrow. <clears throat> Hannah's is so deep, she faithfully begs God. And she's so overcome with her sorrow and the emotion of the pain that the high priest, you might remember, is confused about the overwhelming emotion she's experiencing and thinks she must be drunk. And so that obviously, that imagery would make you think, well, what, what would that look like? Pastorally, I, <clears throat> one of the things that you do in this office is you spend time in funeral homes and with people when folks have passed. And I have borne witness to unrelenting grief where people are not themselves in the grief. And Hannah is in such profound grief that someone from the outside who didn't know her interpreted it as drunk. The Bible doesn't hide it. Sarah is so overwhelmed in her grief that she makes an unbearable choice to try to resolve it by sending this slave girl into her husband. It's an unbelievable choice. I, it is a vile choice. It's a wicked choice. I say that as one who has to point out the obvious reality of the evil of that choice while I'm telling you I don't judge it because I have made horrific choices in my life at times, particularly when I felt backed into a corner. And I just want out. Rachel describes herself in her grief as being mocked, rejected, and abused. 
There is a deep pain with death itself. The Bible calls death our great enemy. It's an inescapable force that every one of us will meet on the path of life through the loss of loved ones and friends, and eventually you and I will face death ourselves. Even believers, when we lose another believer, the Bible says, while we may not grieve like everyone else, we grieve with hope, yet we grieve The grief of not seeing, of not being with, is just unbelievable. The Bible doesn't avoid the reality of that, and the barrenness of these women points us to that truth. But there is a flip side. There is a profound joy for each of them. And in these, the names of their children tends to stand out in the way they talk about it. Rachel. Just mention her first. Rachel, she has Joseph. Yes, Joseph, the famous one of the coat of many colors. She names Joseph, and do you know what his name means? It means takes away. Now, she's waited all this time for a baby. It's a baby boy that she desperately wanted, and she names him Take Away. But she named him Take Away. And she stopped there because he's taken so much away from her. And she didn't mean midnight feedings. She meant he has taken away my grief. And he has taken away my sorrow. And he has taken away my pain. And he has taken away my rejection. And he's taken away my abuse. He's take, God through him has taken it all away. And now there's only joy and hope. And satisfaction. Hannah. Hannah, when she has a son, she names him Samuel. She names him Samuel because Samuel means God hears me. God had heard her cry and soothed her grief with the life of this son. And Sarah. Sarah, she cries out. And you might remember the story of Sarah is so complex. And it's part of the reason I just love her. You remember when Jesus showed up and he told Abraham, you're going to have a son? And Sarah was in the tent and Jesus, because it was the angel of the Lord, heard her laughing. So she names her son Isaac and she cries out and she says, everyone is now going to laugh with and over me because my mourning has now been turned to laughter over the birth of Isaac. She says, it's okay. Laugh at me. Laugh with me. I mocked God with my laughter. Now all my sorrow, all my grief has been turned to indescribable joy. He is the promised son through which heirs would come. And eventually, eventually, this baby boy, Jesus, would be the result. Now, Matthew does this for a number of reasons. One of those is also to prepare us for this vital, miraculous truth. Does God know how to open a womb that has no right to bear a baby? Yes, he does. Mary's womb had no right to bear a baby. It had no more right than Sarah's or Hannah's or Rachel's. 
And if God can burst open a dead womb, he can also create life in this womb that has never known a man. And so part of Matthew doing this is to remind the Jews, don't be so shocked at the power of God. Because he can wake up this womb also. And so in this, it also points us to God. Conception and birth are miracles all of their own. But babies born to barren women are special markers of God's power throughout the Old Testament. They all prepare us for this baby now born to a miraculous source, a virgin womb. Babies are named by these mothers to celebrate what God has done. Named, God has taken away my grief. God has heard me. God, this is the son of promise. All that prepares us for this baby at Christmas. We call him Jesus. Jesus is the English version of the Greek, Jesus, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew, Yeshua, or Joshua. Why? Because it means the Lord is my salvation. Barren women made mothers show us that God sees death and life from both sides. He knows what it is to give life to those that are dead. And he knows what it is to be one who is dead and in the tomb who comes to life again. God heard and he saw and blessed each of these women with life. When Jesus came, he was born to die. He knew and tasted death. And then he rose up from the grave with new life coming from the barren earth. Our own salvation is pictured in the birth of Jesus to this virgin mother. Salvation is the miraculous new birth that comes to each one who would turn from their sin and believe in God. Then, in that moment, you know that God has heard you and God has seen you, that he has replaced your grief with joy. He has fulfilled his promises to you because he has saved you from death and brought you to life. And so Isaiah quotes, is quoted by Matthew. And he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they, who? Who is the they? Is it everyone? No. Remember they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Or isn't this the son of some Samaritan? Who is the they? All those who believe. We shall say it is God with us. And so it's my prayer and my hope for you this Christmas season that you will see a birth story that reminds you that God sees, hears, and rescues you in his love.